Um, I'm excited to continue to dig into the book of Hebrews. And so before I talk about Hebrews, I'm just going to ask that you stand and we'll read chapter 1. And then I'll kind of explain to you where we're going to pick it up from as we left off last week. It's on page 1001 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have your own Bible with you, I highly encourage you to open it, get your eyes on it, and um, allow God's Word to speak to us this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. And God, we pray that as we read this Word, that you would make it living and active to us. We do believe that your Word is living and active, but in order for it to be that to us, we need your Spirit to illuminate it, We need your spirit to open up our eyes, open up our ears, that we may receive it. So Lord, as we read this morning, would you speak to us? Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Father, speak now through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So last week we dug into this text and I said there's seven specific characteristics that the author of Hebrews here shows us that tell us that Jesus is better. Seven characteristics. We got through two of the five. So two of the seven. So our goal today is to get through the rest of the five. And then there's also seven Old Testament passages referenced in the second half of this chapter that kind of symbolize for us that Jesus is better. Seven being the number of completeness or wholeness in the Jewish mind, in the Hebrews mind. And that's who this is written to. This letter, actually, it's believed that this is probably a sermon that was preached and then it was transcribed. And so we are studying likely what was a sermon in the first century to Jewish Christians who were struggling in their faith. They were struggling to believe that Jesus is better. 
there were all these different competing things for their attention, and they were struggling to take God at his word and to say, Jesus is better, period. I don't know about you, but I struggle to believe that as well. In fact, as I prepared to preach this week, and I didn't have a ton of preparation to do so, I thought, because I had, you know, I covered two of seven points, right? So all I had to do was pick up and do the next five. Uh, But I continued to wrestle through it, and I just had a lack of peace in my spirit about what I was preaching and how, how I was going to preach it and, and struggling to believe that Jesus is better and struggling to believe that these words were true. And so I was wrestling through this text this week. And what I want to do before I dig into the text is give you the conclusion. I want to I give you what I, what I came to and where I want us to end up today. And then I want to come back and walk through this text. And the reason I want to do that is because what I found myself doing this week is feeling like what I needed to do is take Hebrews chapter 1 and turn it into a list of to-dos for you. As I read through it, I, I, I wanted to find, okay, what am I supposed to do? Yes, Jesus is better, but, but what am I supposed to do? And I think when we gather, that's often what we're what we think we want. It's not actually what we want. It's not actually what we need. But as humans, we want a to-do list, right? You you probably walk in thinking, I want to meet with Jesus. I want to experience him. I want to be empowered. I want to walk out of this time together as a more effective Christian, as a better Christian. I want to experience the presence of God. That's what we want, and that's that's good. But oftentimes, I think how we believe we're going to get there is with a list of to-dos, so a lot of times people will listen to a sermon and think, okay, what's the application? What, what can I take and now go do? And that's what I wanted to give to you this week. That's what I wanted. That's what I thought you all wanted. That's what I wrestled with. I'm like, okay, this Hebrews chapter 1 is incredible and it's great, but, but what are we supposed to do? Give me something to do. I want to tell the church, here's a checklist. If you want to grow, go and do this and you'll grow. Um, and I couldn't find it. Because what happens here, what, what we have here in Hebrews chapter 1 is a passage of deep theology. It's just exaltation of who Jesus is. It's just telling us that he is better. And in that, it leaves out a list of things for you to do because your works aren't good enough. They're not better. Jesus is better. So Hebrews chapter 1 has for us this, this theological explanation, this incredibly deep and profound poetry and sermon saying that Jesus is better. And so as, I, as that hit me over and over again this week, I was like, I don't want to preach that because I say that every week and I don't even know if I believe that. Just give me some things to do that I can give the church to do and we can make ourselves better Christians and we can do this. And, and, I, and I feel like God impressed this on my heart. What you have in Hebrews chapter 1 isn't a to-do list. It's an I've already done it list. It's, it, it's a list of things that are necessary for us to live life to the fullest. And everything that's listed, it's checked off. And Jesus is stamped over the top of it. And he says, it's done. So the purpose of Hebrews chapter 1 is for us to just see how glorious Jesus is. It's actually for us to experience that Jesus is better. It's for us to see, it's for us to read, it's for us to soak in the fact that Jesus is better and walk out without a checklist, but walk out free saying, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, for you have checked all of these things off. You are better. You are. You lived the life that I can't live. 
You died the death that I should have died. And now I can walk out into life with all of its struggles, with all of its trials, with all of my failures, feeling complete. Because I have a Savior who is complete. And he gives that to me. And so I want to start here with the list of the seven ways that Jesus is better. And then we're going to walk through this passage to see how this is true. And then we'll come back to it. But here's, here's really what we're learning in this text. Here are the seven things that we're told that Jesus is better. Jesus is a better prophet. We talked about that last week. He is God's word to us. I don't have to be an amazing prophet here this morning. You don't have to walk out into the world with a word from the Lord. It doesn't hinge on you. Jesus is a better prophet. He is God's word to you this morning. Jesus is a better son. We talked about that one last week. He is God's pleasure in you. God looks at you and he is pleased because of who Jesus is. God's pleasure in you. Jesus is God's pleasure in you. God is pleased with you because of Jesus. Jesus is God's light upon you. We live in a dark, cold, depressing world. It's hard to tell which way to go. And Jesus is God's light upon us. We're going to look at that this morning. Jesus is God's image with you. Our world is so concerned about image, right? We, we um, watch TV. For, as you watch the Vikings game today, most of the commercials are going to be about you making a better image for yourself. And Jesus is God's image with us. We have a new identity, a new image in Jesus Christ. We don't need to buy the latest fashion trends. We don't have to do whatever those commercials will tell us we need to do to improve our self-image. Jesus is God's image with us. Jesus is God's support beneath us. I don't know if you've ever felt like you're on, on sinking sand or like, like the world is just about to explode and like nothing is sure, nothing is stable, nothing is set. Like, like you need to be upheld. You're sinking and someone needs to lift you up. Jesus is God's support beneath you. You can hop on his shoulders. He will hold you when you're sinking. Jesus is God's purification of you. So maybe you come in this morning feeling like you've committed the same sin acts hundreds of times and you are dirty, you are guilty, you are shameful, you are you're what we are. You don't measure up. And so you've gone back to that same sin habit time and time again, and you feel dirty, you feel stained, you feel guilty. This passage is telling us that Jesus is God's purification of us. The things that you feel about your sin aren't the things that are true about you if you're in Christ. Because Jesus has purified you. Jesus is God's purification of you. Jesus is a better purifier. We're going to talk about that this morning. And then lastly, Jesus is God's victory for you. Maybe you feel like you can never win, you can never get ahead, you're always struggling, you're always behind, and again, Jesus is God's victory for you. So that's, there's no to-dos there other than just rest and believe. That's our to-do list. Will you believe this? Will you believe that Jesus is better? And so let's walk through this text now and kind of come back on all those things. So those are seven, I think, 
benefits for our soul, what I want to happen this morning is I want our souls to be ministered to. And, and I think those truths from God's word will minister to our souls. But what it's going to take for us to experience those is some flipping, flipping around in scripture and trusting that God's word will speak to us, that his word will minister to our souls. So I'm going to walk through Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3, really just verse 3, and then we're going to flip to some other passages in Scripture here. Um, just to summarize from last week, last week we covered chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Today we're going to cover pretty much just verse 3. Now through, throughout the entire series on the book of Hebrews, we're not going to do one or two verses a week. We will pick up speed at some point here. But this is an incredibly profound opening. And so we need to spend time on it to let God work it into our souls so that we would actually believe it. So last week we looked at verses 1 and 2, which say, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so last week, what we did is, in our context, kind of looking at the history of this book, why we have this book, we talked about how it can be trusted, that it's, that it's historic and it's rooted. It comes from long ago, and God has been faithful to speak to us over and over again through prophets, through signs, through wonders. But in the last days, in the day here and now, and in the last days doesn't mean like tomorrow could be the last day, though it could be. This was written 2,000 years ago. It's this time period. Now that Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, we are in the last days. Okay, Christ could come back anytime, and so we are in the last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. So last week, we looked at Jesus being a better prophet and a better son. As it's underlined there, he, he has spoken to us. He has spoken. God has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the better prophet he is the word of God. He doesn't merely carry a word from God. And he's a better son. In Jesus the son, God is fully pleased. God is well pleased. And so when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is attributed to us. We are not sons and daughters who can please God with our own merit. But Jesus is the son who fully pleased the father when we place our faith in him, God looks at us and he says, I am pleased with you. Okay, so that was last week. This week, we're going to keep moving through this text into verse 3, which I'll read for us. He, this is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then all the next verses, these Old Testament passages, help to kind of hold up that point about who Jesus is. But first one here to notice, he is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is a better light. In a cold and dark world, Jesus is the ultimate light. He is the better light. And what the author of Hebrews here is getting at with this word radiance, he's trying to, he's trying to bring these Jewish Christians' minds back to the Old Testament idea of the Shekinah glory of God. The people who are hearing this would have understood that when God's presence comes, when God shows up, there's this incredible radiant light, which you can hardly look at. And so here... 
the writer of Hebrews is telling them Jesus is better than the Old Testament experience of God's presence. God would show up in the Old Testament as this radiant light. His glory is so bright, so powerful that you couldn't look at it. And that's how you knew that God's presence was in your midst in the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory of God. And he's saying now that glory of God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Shekinah glory means a divine visitation of the presence or the dwelling of God on earth. And so let's look at a couple examples of how this worked out in the Old Testament. Flip to Exodus chapter 13. It's on page 56 in the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 20 through 22. Again, page 56 in the Pew Bible. All right, Exodus 13, 20 through 22. And this is the Israelites as they are moving through the wilderness, being led by Moses, ultimately being led by God as he speaks to Moses. And they moved on from Sakath and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So that's God's Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. It's the, the pillar of, of cloud during day. And so they knew that God was moving them along when God's presence was there in the pillar of a cloud, the Shekinah glory. God, Yahweh, the great I am, is present moving us because he's there. We see the radiance of his glory. And at night, it was this burning flame. That's how people experienced the presence of God in the Old Testament, the glory of God. That's how they experienced the radiant light of God in the Old Testament. Let's continue looking at how Moses and the people engaged with the Shekinah glory of God. Go over to Exodus chapter 33 on page 73. Can I just say I love hearing your pages turn? I'm so proud of you for actually looking at the Bible. This is great. Don't take my word for it. Look at God's word. Exodus chapter 33, verse 7 through 11. Again, this is the people in the wilderness being led by God's Shekinah glory. They had set up a tent, a tent of meeting. Listen to how God's Shekinah glory showed up to them. Exodus 33, starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so here we see, again, this example of God's Shekinah glory. The radiance of God would come and it would hover over this tent, and he would meet with Moses face to face, but it was through Moses. 
He, he, he wasn't meeting presently with all the people. The glory of God, the radiance of God was contained to this tent of meeting. It was contained to this cloud. It was contained to this flame. They could see it and it inspired them with the power of God, but it wasn't directly for them in the Old Testament. So God was showing himself to them. He was leading them through the wilderness. He was reminding them, here's what my presence looks like. It's glorious. It's radiant. You can't even fully comprehend it, but it's not yet for you. And then one more, Exodus 34, 29 through 35. So we have that discourse about the tent of meeting, and then between there and up to here, Moses goes up onto the mountain, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. And then listen to how God's Shekinah glory interacted with mankind here in Exodus 34, verses 29. When Moses came down from the Mount of Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were all afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of the Lord, that the skin of Moses' face was shining and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went up to speak with them. And so we see this interacting with the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. God is light, he is radiant light, and he is transforming Moses' face. But it's through Moses, the mediator. Moses is the representative of God to the people. And so God has this unique relationship with Moses, and Moses is able to see the radiance of God's glory, and Moses is changed by the radiance of God's glory. But that didn't have an effect on all of the people. It's like if I was to go over into my office and God was to show up and speak to me and I came out with my face pasty white. Oh wait, that already happens, but it's a different kind of pasty white. I'm Scandinavian, so that's why that's the case. Um, but, it, but it's like if I and God had this special relationship, and oftentimes people think this in the church, I think that a pastor or a priest has a special relationship with God that isn't for them. As we track through here, that's not what we see. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. But the point of Hebrews here that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God is that this Shekinah glory is for all of the people of God. He now shows up in the New Testament, no longer in a, in a pillar of smoke or clouds or a fire and through a mediator who's not you or not Jesus. He shows up to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. There's no tent of meeting that you need to go to to experience the glory of God. There's no person, there's no pastor, there's no priest, there's no mediator that you need to go to that you could get closer to the presence of God. God's Shekinah glory, the radiance of God is through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is saying. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. So if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see him in all of his majesty, look to Jesus, his son. 
a promise that we're given in Isaiah 60. Look at Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 5. It's on page 619. So that's how God's glory interacted with Israel in the Old Testament. And then as history continued to unfold, God gave this promise about the future of his Shekinah glory, the future of his radiant light. Look at Isaiah 60, 1 through 5. This is a promise that God has given to the people about the coming of Jesus. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The radiant glory of God's light. It's not in a pillar of fire. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall, your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. Then you shall see and be radiant, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And here this promise is saying that when that radiance comes, when God's glory comes to dwell among us, we will see it and that will change us and transform us, that we will be radiant, that we will radiate with the light of God. And so this is a promise for us. Continue looking. Um, go over to verse 19 and 20 of the same chapter. Just listen to the poetic promise here of Jesus' radiance. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended." Isn't that beautiful? As the earth needs the sun for nourishment and to flourish, so our souls need the sun, the S-O-N, the Son of God, to be nourished and to flourish. God has sent His one and only Son, Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and He is available to each one of us. This promise has been kept. This promise has been fulfilled. In our era, in our day and age, in our place of biblical redemptive history, the Shekinah glory of God isn't contained to a tent. It's not contained to a fire. It's not contained to a cloud. It's in a person, Jesus Christ, who we have available to us. Flip over to John chapter 1, verse 14, on page 886. Let's see how Jesus is that fulfillment. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, the Logos, Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
as Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the Shekinah glory of God. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12, on page 812. Uh, that can't be right. John chapter 8, verse 12, whatever page number that's on. It's on page 894. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 17, I'm not going to flip there, but it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on this mountain with his disciples and God shows up and Jesus' face is transformed. It's so bright that they can't look at him. Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. As Hebrews 1, 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is a better light. If you feel like you're walking in darkness, like you're plagued by darkness, like your soul experiences darkness, look to Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Next one, he is the exact imprint of his nature. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. When we went through Colossians, we hit this pretty hard. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21 has a great picture of this as well. What it's saying is that we, we were created in the image of God and, and we screw that image up. Jesus comes as, as a human but as a human, he's the exact nature of God. So when we see what Jesus is like, we see what God is like. When we look at what Jesus did, we see what God would do. Jesus is for us the exact imprint of God's nature. So when we read the Gospels and we see how Jesus had compassion, when we see how Jesus called people to repentance, when we see how Jesus cared for the poor, when he made time for kids, when, when he, whatever we see in Jesus, that's revealing to us who God is and what God is like. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is a better image. I mean, sometimes we do good works trying to puff up our self-image, right? We want others to think better of us, and so sometimes we, we do acts of service to actually have people think better of us. Anyone ever done that? Maybe it's just me. How, how gross. Yet that's sometimes what we do. And here this is saying that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. All of his good was done out of good. It was actually done in good for good. Jesus is God's image. He is a better image of humanity than we are. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This passage, it tells us at the end of verse 2 that Jesus was also active in creation. So through Jesus, the world was created, and by Jesus, the world is sustained. I mean, this isn't just theoretical. This is if the word of God's power stops, if the word of Jesus' creative power and ability to uphold stops, everything ceases to exist. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is upholding us right now by speaking his power over us. And he tarries to return because he wants more and more to come to experience the abundant life in him. Jesus is a better support. If you feel like, like the people that you lean on for support let you down, like the systems that you lean on 
for support let you down. What you need to know is that Jesus is able to uphold the universe. If he can uphold the universe which he created, how much more can he uphold you? You're a lightweight compared to the universe. Should have done some scientific research to see how much the universe weighs and you weigh. And God can uphold us. Jesus upholds us with the word of his power. We need to look at one passage for this. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. It's on page 601. Isaiah 41, 10. Listen to this prophetic promise about Jesus. Fear not. Any of you ever, ever struggle with fear? I just talked to somebody this morning who was anxious. Fear comes from anxiety. And here's God's word for us. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God will uphold us with his righteous right hand. Who's at his right hand? Jesus. Jesus upholds us by the word of his power. He is God's faithfulness to us. He is God's proof that he cares for us, that he can handle the weight that we often carry. Set it down and let him hold it up. Let him hold you up. The next one, he is a better purifier. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that that he made purification for sins. He is a better purifier. This is incredibly powerful and important for us. If you're like me and you sin, um, which you all do, so we're in this together, and if you struggle with the same sins over and over again and you feel like you just can't get it right, like you continue to fail in the, wrong, in the same areas, what you need to know is that Jesus has made purification for your sins. If you feel dirty, if you feel shame, You need to believe that Jesus' work is sufficient for you. He has purified you. He has made you clean. You are not as dirty as you feel. In fact, you're not even dirty in the eyes of God if you're in Jesus Christ. You have been purified by Jesus, the Son. This is an incredible truth. As we talked about this in my core group a couple weeks ago, one of the guys in my core group said, I need to remember that because when I sin, I tend to beat myself up. And I tend to think that kind of my moping around about my sin and my beating myself up will prove to God that I'm sorry and then he will clean me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you're already clean. If you're in Jesus, God looks at your sin and he says, that's gone. Though your sin, red as scarlet, he has made it white as snow. Jesus purifies us from all of our sin. Jesus is a better purifier. Not the priest. Not your religious duties and checklist. Not how many times you ask for forgiveness. There's no system that you can go through to purify your soul other than through the man, Jesus, the Christ. He is the purifier of our soul. And then lastly here, this is tied to the purification idea, but Jesus is 
a better mediator. He is God's victory for us. So he purifies our sin. He makes us clean. As Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's Jesus purifying us. And then after he makes that act of purification, what does he do? It says he sits down at the right hand of the mighty on high. Jesus is sitting down on the job. Why? Because he can. Because his purification, his sacrifice for us was once and for all. It's finished. It's done. He doesn't need to continue working on our behalf because what he's done on our behalf is sufficient. It's complete. It's done. It's final. Jesus has a seat in victory because our sins have been forgiven. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to have to jump ahead in Hebrews to see this really play out. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. Again, this is all just in the first part of Hebrews, and the, author, or the, the preacher continues to lay this out throughout the book. But he wants us to see up front who Jesus is, how Jesus is better. Here, Jesus is a better victory. He is the mediator for us. Look at how he words this later on in the book. Chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service. So this is Old Testament. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, make sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people, and he would stand daily in the service. So his, he was working, right? The Old Testament high priest was working. He would go into the temple. He would make the sacrifices. He was working on behalf of the people. Listen to what it says. So every high priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's working, doing this repetitive work, coming again into the presence of God, bringing sacrifice, hoping that it would take the sins away. It doesn't take the sins away. It just appeases God in this moment. It's, it's the way that God worked out this law and this system in the Old Testament. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is a better purifier. He is our victory. He sits down at the right hand of God after he goes to the cross on our behalf, gives up his body as a sacrifice, sheds his blood. He sits in the presence of God because it's done. The sacrifice for your sins has been made once and for all. You don't need to continue to sacrifice for your salvation. Jesus did that. We sacrifice for the mission of God, right? We make sacrifices in following God. Make no mistake about it, though. We make zero sacrifices for our salvation. Jesus did that once for all. It is finished. You are forgiven. You've been purified. God reigns, and he looks at you, and he says, I love you. I want you. You're pure. You're clean. Come into my presence. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 is trying to tell us. It's not telling you to go and pray a little bit more in the morning or to read your Bible a little bit harder or to go to some, do some religious activity or to, to, to sing worship music the right way or to take communion the right way. It's saying Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Do you believe that, church? And we struggle to believe it. That's why we sang in that song, Make My Heart Believe. 
This is what we need, and we often reject what we need. But God, we're asking and inviting you here to remind us. We're actually acknowledging that you're already here. And we're acknowledging your presence in us, and we are asking you to make our hearts believe that you are better. And as we turn to communion now, we'll take these elements to remind our hearts that Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. That Jesus is for us God's word. That Jesus is for us pleasure. That Jesus is God's light upon us. That Jesus is God's image with us. Jesus is God's support beneath us. Jesus is God's purification for you. And Jesus is God's victory for you. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father because he made the sacrifice which was once for all. It's good for us. So we're going to pass the elements. You can take them as you receive them and let them remind you that Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. It's sufficient. It's, it's, it's good enough. It's fully sufficient. There's nothing that you could do to earn your salvation other than looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and saying, thank you for this gift. So let's take communion this morning as a reminder of the gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and then we'll pass out the elements. Again, take them as you receive them. If, if you believe that Jesus is enough, these elements are for you. We practice open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion here, but you do have to believe in Jesus, and we invite you to place your faith and trust in him here and now. If you're not sure yet, simply pass the elements, and I would love to talk to you after the service. But let's take these now as a reminder that Jesus' sacrifice once for all is sufficient for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to God the Father and that in him you are well pleased. And now that pleasure is attributed to us. As Hebrews 10 told us that Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice. These elements represent that single sacrifice. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. And then after making purification for sins, he sat down, he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. And so we want to enter that place through your power and your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.